So we are actually going through the first half of the book of John in a new series called The Abundant Life. I'm going to continue to do that. We looked at just the first several verses in John 1. We're going to continue to go through John 1. So uh, just buckle your seatbelts. I want to ask you a question. Have you ever had an aha moment? You know, one of those times in which you're just kind of walking along or reading or watching something, and all of a sudden, boom, it's usually an image, and it just clicks for you. I'm, I'm going to tell you an aha moment that I had one time. And I've told you the story before, so I'm going to be brief, but my wife and I just had our fifth baby. We'd had four girls, and then God just decided to give us a boy. Now, we were excited about that, but we lived in a three-bedroom, and we're kind of thinking, going, eventually, can we fit four girls in one room and one boy? Nope, ain't going to happen. So we looked at our options, and my wife found a house, she, but it was bigger than what we were actually looking for. I mean, because we're just trying to, you know, finances being tight. And so we just decided, hey, let's just go look at this thing. It was over in Oviedo, okay, which we lived over in that direction at the time, but we really wanted to move more over this direction. So we go and visit the house, and it's a large house. I was like, wow, okay, would God bless us with, with a house like this? So we go, we go in, and we just start walking around. And understand that before I get there, I've given my wife the ten reasons why we should not buy the home, okay? And God decided to take every single one of those reasons, church, every single one of them, and turn them around. And, and it was nothing short of miraculous. I've shared the story with you before, how God just that month turned our finances around, truly turned it around. And it lasted until closing, and then it went back to normal. Things like this just happening out of the blue. And so here I am, you know, we're walking around this house, and with every step, Every single one of those objections just begins to crumble. And God begins to speak to my heart and says, this is the house that I want you to have. And I, I, I was dumbfounded. And I, we're, we're up in what presently is our homeschool room or office, our library, I should call it now. Since we're done homeschooling and there's like 4,000 books in this big room. And we just sit down. It's a game room, a recreation room. We sit down in these chairs, and I look over at her, and I says, Meredith, I can't believe this, but I believe we're supposed to purchase this house. I don't know how God is going to do that, but as I walked through the house, I realized how God was going to use this house for his, for his kingdom. And God just God gave me an epiphany, basically an aha moment that overcame every objection, and it's like, I get it. I get it. Have you ever had one of those occasions? I had another one when I was 14 years of age, and this one, see, I'd grown up in a Christian home like all my life, and when I was 14, my brother sat me down and gave me this little gospel tract, and it said, am I going to heaven? Find out inside, and it's like Friday, and I'm thinking, two more days until church. What are you doing this now for, okay? This is like religion a little early. I don't like this. And so as I be, there's resistance, I began to read it. God began to help me. I understood the gospel truly for the first time, and it was like an aha moment, like God turned the light on. And 
I, f I forget what the uh, character is. He says, light bulb moment, right? Light bulb. And that's what I had. It was like a light bulb moment. Have you ever had one of those light bulb moments before in your life? I want us to look at a character, and it's John the Baptist. And believe it or not, I truly believe that John the Baptist, at the baptism of Jesus, has one of these aha moments, like a light bulb moment. Now, if there was anyone during this time that knew about the Messiah, it would be him, right? Because he was preparing the way of the Lord. He was preparing the way for Jesus. He knew about Jesus. I'm going to say that he knew some of the Old Testament prophecies, but he did not understand it all. And when Jesus was baptized, something happened we're going to look at that just kind of opened his eyes. And it's like, I get it. This is who Jesus is. And when you understand this, my friend, it will, it will lay you out. It will open your eyes, and it will tug at your heart and say, this is the one I want to follow. I want to follow Jesus. Because as we read last week, John came only to testify about the light. He was not the light. Well, let's look at this passage. Just in way of review, in chapter 1, verse 6, it says, There came a man who was sent from God. His name was John. That is, not John the evangelist who's writing this, but John the Baptist. He came as a witness to testify concerning that light so that through him all men might believe. He himself was not the light. He came only as a witness to testify to the light. Father, I just ask that as we read your word, as we study it, as we pour over it, that Spirit of God, you would pour over us and give us fresh revelation of your word and who Jesus truly is. And Father, I pray that the result is that we're going to go from this place so encouraged, so envisioned for the very purpose of Jesus in my life and me being in Christ. Would you do that, Spirit of God? You be our teacher tonight in Jesus' name. Amen. And so we looked at that last week, that John the Baptist came to declare, to witness, to testify. Can I just tell you that this word witness is the Greek word for martyr. We get our word martyr from this word. Now, I'm not saying that John knew that he was going to die. No, it's the martyr testifies to Jesus no matter what. That was John. John was going to testify. He was going to witness concerning Jesus no matter what. And John the Baptist eventually did die because he proclaimed Jesus was coming and he focused on challenging people to do what? Do you remember? Starts with the word R. Not retire, but to repent. He called them to repent. The Pharisees didn't like it. As a matter of fact, he said to the Pharisees, to them, you know, because they were gathered there and they were refusing to be baptized but they were saying that they had repented. So he said this, Pharisees, you, you vipers, you know what a viper is, a venomous snake. You vipers, show the proof of your repentance. You say you've repented, but where is it? Because even God can raise up children to him from these very rocks. Wow. So John did end up dying for what he believed. So he came as a witness. As a matter of fact, if we were to turn to a few verses later with John 15, excuse me, 115, it says John testifies concerning him, concerning Jesus. He cries out saying, this was he of whom I said, he who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. That's a lot of words there. 
He, it says, he, wa- he comes after me, but he has surpassed me. Why? Because he was before me. Meaning, John understands something about Jesus that Jesus actually existed before he was born. See, John the Baptist, the cousin of Jesus, was born six months before Jesus was born. But John is confessing, he was before me. He is before I even was born. He was here. So it is now his time to surpass me. And I want us to see, as John gets this aha moment, it's like, that's who he is. Yes. If there's anyone who knew Jesus, it would have been John. But even John has this aha moment. So, he is not the Messiah. Some Jews sent priests and Levites, some of them were Pharisees, to question John. He says, nope, I am not the prophet, I'm not the Christ, I'm not Elijah come in the flesh. I am simply the one crying in the wilderness, the voice of one calling in the desert, make straight the way of the Lord. So I want us to to ask this question, then what is it or how is it that John had this aha moment? So turn with me. This is what we're going to focus on tonight, verses 29 through 34. So that day, the Pharisees came, priest Levites, questioning, and then it says, the next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, look, or behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is the one I meant when I said, a man who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. I myself did not know him. Did you catch that? I myself did not know him. If, if you want to underline that, go ahead and do that. He says, I myself did not. Here's John the Baptist. He's confessing, I didn't know him. Now, some of your translations say I didn't recognize him. And, and we're going to come to that. And I'm going to disagree with it for a reason. But we're going to see in just a moment. He, tru- he did not know him. But the reason I came baptizing with, with water was that he might be revealed to Israel. Then John gave this testimony. I saw the Spirit come down from heaven as a dove and remain on him. I would not have known him. Again, he says this. I would not have known him except that the one who sent me to baptize with water told me, the man on whom you see the Spirit come down. Now, it doesn't say how the Spirit was going to come down, and I think that's significant. It's just just that the Spirit was going to come down on him. And remain, he is the one who will baptize with the Holy Spirit. I have seen, this is what he's saying, he's testifying. I have seen and I testify that this is the Son of God. Now, why do I disagree? And I think the NASB, it translates, they did not recognize him. The NASB, I think, later uh, changes that. But regardless, um, some believe this word that's written that's used here is it's ado means to recognize now let me just say i believe that when this dove comes down john that that moment truly has this aha moment and knows jesus 
this is a this is a funny word and it can be translated either as to see or to know wow i mean literally see not i see what you're saying not that kind of see but to see with your eyes you see something i see my daughter okay you to see jesus in john 3 says no one can see the kingdom of god unless he is born again you must be born again to see it and then later he says to enter the kingdom of god you have to be born again wow but he literally means to see it you're not even going to be able to get in there and look you you can't unless you're born again it also means to know now here's some variations it can mean to recognize but here's why i don't believe that when the spirit of god came upon jesus that that's when john recognized oh my goodness this jesus he's my cousin yeah this he's the messiah is because of this in matthew chapter 3 and you don't have to turn there i'm going to read it to you it says this verses 13 through 15 then jesus came from galilee to the jordan to be baptized by john but john tried to deter him saying I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? Do you think at this time that John the Baptist recognizes that Jesus is the Messiah? I would say absolutely, and for that reason, he says, wait, 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 Jesus, you're surpassing me. You're before me. You, you're the guy I've been pointing the way. You're I am here to reveal you to Israel. You're greater than me. I need to be baptized by you. He recognizes Jesus as the Messiah. This is the guy that he's been pointing all of Israel to. And yet Jesus says, let it be so now. It is proper for us to do this to fulfill all righteousness. Then John consented. As soon as Jesus was baptized, he went out of the water. Now, we're not sure if he comes, like he goes under and then comes up out of the water or if he's walking out of the water. We're not quite sure there. But at that moment, heaven was opened. I don't know if the clouds parted or what. But heaven, that is the sky, was opened. And he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and lighting on him. Verse 17 says this, And a voice from heaven, guess whose voice that would have been, said, This is my son, whom I love, with him I am well pleased. Let me just say it again. I believe before Jesus was baptized and the Spirit came upon him, John already knew who he was. So he's not recognizing him. There's another way to understand this word, Edo, and that is to truly know. To truly know, to know intimately, to know fully. And I believe that's what John is trying to say here. If you were to look back when the Pharisees are questioning him, it's John confesses when they say, why then do you baptize if you're not the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? John responds, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know. He is the one who comes after me. The thongs of whose sandals I'm not worthy to untie. I don't believe John the Baptist is trying to say, you know, as you look out upon, among men, you don't recognize this person that I am preparing the way of. You don't recognize, no, you don't know him. You don't know him personally. And John confesses, guess what? Neither did I, not until that moment. 
not until that moment. So if this is what is happening, the dove comes upon him, and John has this aha moment, just give me a few moments before I lay out for us, there are three things that John, like, he finally gets it. And that's where I want to spend the chunk of our time. But before that, what does John the Baptist know about this Jesus? Aside from the fact that he, he probably did know that Jesus was his cousin, six months younger than him. Aside from that, we recognize that John the Baptist believes that Jesus is the Messiah. This is something that's talked about in the Old Testament. John understands he's the Messiah. John also recognizes that Jesus was before him, that I mentioned, that he actually existed before him. That's a little bit freaky because John did not exist and neither did you and I exist before we were, uh, until we were born. But Jesus did. That's probably a clue. There is something super unusual about this guy. Man. But John didn't quite get it. The Messiah would also baptize in the Holy Spirit. We're going to come back to that in a little bit later. But the Messiah would baptize in the Holy Spirit. Understand the Holy Spirit had not been poured out yet. Not for another three and a half years. Also, John was not the Messiah. Instead, it says he was the voice of one calling in the desert. Make straight ways for the Lord. If you were to go back where this is from, that would be Isaiah chapter 40, verse 3. John the Baptist is that voice. He's preparing the way for who? For who? For the Messiah. And his name is Jesus. He's preparing the way for the Lord. Who is the Lord then? It's Jesus. Actually, when you prepare the way for a king, because this verse gives us hints that this one who is coming, that he's preparing the way for it, is a king. Because when you prepare the way, a road, you would take the high areas and you would make them low. You would take the low areas and make them high to make level ground. Sometimes you would put logs down and fill it with dirt. Whatever you would do, you would fill it in so that, the, so that when the king came with his chariot, it was level ground. That leveling of the ground so that it didn't go this way or this way is a, is a picture of the repentant heart. John came to tell people to repent, and by repenting, prepare the way for the Lord. But the way of the Lord is Jesus. Now, if you, were to, if you had a Hebrew Bible in front of you, and you can even do this with your English Bible, and you look at this word, the way of the Lord, it's capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. It's not the, it's not the Hebrew word Adonai, which we would expect. Yeah, I mean, he, he's the Lord. He's, he's the master. Isaiah's not saying that. He's, that, that. Those four letters for Lord capitalized, at least in the English Bible, is how they would translate Y-H-W-H, Jehovah, or better, Yahweh. This is the way of Yahweh. Isaiah was predicting that Jesus would come and that he is Yahweh. 
So I'm not convinced that John the Baptist necessarily understood that last part. But he understands much of Jesus. So what happens now? Let's get into those three things. Let's dive into them. By the Spirit descending upon Jesus as a dove, that just gave John this picture. What would a dove coming or lighting upon someone like Jesus give John the Baptist an aha moment? When I mention the, the word dove to you, what comes to your mind? Dove, what comes to your mind? Most people would say uh, maybe lovebirds, doves, lovebirds. Actually, in the Song of Songs or Songs of Solomon, the, the husband, the man, calls his wife my dove. So I kind of get that, but I'm not sure that's what gave John an aha moment here. Something found about a dove in the Old Testament gives John this picture, and it's like, man, I get it now. There are two other things, two other ways in which a dove is strongly mentioned in the Old Testament. The first one I'm sure you're familiar with is when the dove comes back after being sent out from Noah's Ark, and what does he have in his beak? No, it's not a car. He has an olive branch. In his, but if you Google that, what that's supposed to symbolize, you know what you'll find almost everywhere on the Internet is that it represents peace. Can I just tell you that the dove with an olive branch in his mouth does not in any way, shape, or form represent peace. It is not a symbol of peace. I hope that doesn't shock you. But it's truly not a symbol. You know what it's a symbol of? The, the earth had been completely destroyed, and that olive branch represented finally, at last, after a year. Can you imagine being locked up with animals for a year, church, having to clean their crates? Oh, my goodness. After a year, we finally can go outside. Why? Because the, 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 the ark had been stuck on a rock, Mount Ararat, and when the dove came back, it said, there's life out there. The dove represents then life, new life, new beginning. I want to emphasize that word. The dove means life. We're going to see that in just a moment. But what else does the dove represent? Mary, the mother of Jesus, knew this well. For you to be purified for any kind of uncleanness, which would be a symbol of forgiveness now in Christ for our sins, it was a picture not that a woman having a son or a daughter was sinful. It was just a picture. She did have to be purified. So when someone like that, and there were other reasons why you would need to be purified, you would need to bring two things. Listen, a lamb and a dove. Let me just say that again. You would need to bring a lamb and a dove. Now, John the Baptist was of the Levite heritage, his father was a priest. He was trained. He knew about this. He knew about the sacrifices. So when he sees a dove, he's going to immediately think a lamb and a dove for purification reasons. And if you're pure, excuse me, if you're poor, like Mary was, when she had to go through her purification after Jesus was born, you can have two doves. Why? Because lambs are costly. The death of a lamb is costly. Let that sink in. 
so here this this dove descends upon Jesus and he represents two things. He represents sacrifice and he represents not peace, but he represents life. He represents sacrifice for purification and he represents life. When Jesus, excuse me, when John sees Jesus coming toward him, it's not for Jesus to be baptized. When it says right here that he saw Jesus coming toward him, it's not for Jesus to be baptized. We know this because when John the Baptist sees him, he says, he says this, I myself did not know him. While Jesus is walking towards him, he says, I did not know him. See, he would have said, I do not know him. Because he didn't know him until he was baptized. So I'm going to suggest that this is Jesus. It's after Jesus' baptism. Jesus is walking towards him. And he's declaring something. What is the very first thing that comes out of John the Baptist's mouth? When he sees Jesus coming towards him. It's the very same thing that he says the next day when Jesus was simply passing by. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The Lamb of God. He takes away the sin of the world. Who would this Lamb of God be? Why does, is this just this? Is this just a phrase that John comes up with? A picture, an imagery that John is the first one to give? No. If you were to go back to Isaiah 53, Isaiah 53 is all about this man, the servant. He's the Messiah, and he has said, on him our sins would be laid. He bore the punishment that brought us peace. He was like a, a lamb, an innocent lamb, led to the slaughter, and he was silent before his accusers. It goes on to say, and, the, and it pleased the Lord to crush him. That is, for the Lord to allow him to be crushed. He was pierced for our transgressions. This is the lamb, and, J and John the Baptist says, that lamb of God is him. Do you see it? Le the, this is the lamb of God. It also gives a reflection of the Passover lamb that all Jews would be aware of. Because, see, it's not just, when there were sacrifices, it wasn't always a lamb. Sometimes it was a goat. So I'm being very specific here. It was a lamb that was sacrificed at Passover. And it was a lamb in Isaiah 53 that was predicted that would come. And he would somehow take on himself my sins so that the punishment that I deserve for my sin would fall on him. He took that. Now, I want you to notice something here. It says that, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Did you know that Jesus took your sins away? See, it's one thing to say Jesus washed your sins away. And he did. Don't get me wrong. He did. He washed them away. They are not counted against you. Your sin has been obliterated before God. 
so that you actually stand before him. And the only thing that God your father sees when he looks upon you, Peter, when he looks upon you, he doesn't say, oh my goodness, last Wednesday, I, oof, that was just so bad, Peter. I don't know what you did last Wednesday. I did meet with you, by the way. But uh, no, he sees, guess what? When he looks at Peter, he sees the righteousness of Christ. Wow. Jesus, yes, he washed away our sin, but dig into this a little bit more. He's the Lamb of God, and he takes away your sin. He takes it away from you. Jesus came to rescue you for, from your sin. Your sin was not just a stain. It was something you were addicted to that you held on to. You wanted, I wanted my sin. And Jesus came and said, you know what? I need to take it from you. Right? That addiction in your life. You know, when we think of addictions, sometimes we think of drugs or alcohol or pornography. Guess what, church? We were all, every single one of us, we were all addicted to sin. The, word, the Bible says we were slaves of sin. See, same thing. And so Jesus comes to take my sin from me. Yes, to wash it away. But he doesn't just leave us in our addiction to sin. He does something. He takes the sin away from us. He breaks that bondage that's in us. That is, that's his purpose. And this process called sanctification, that's what he's doing. He's removing it more and more and more until one day we're going to stand before him. And church, we will have no desire whatsoever for sin. I look forward to that day. Because your pastor, as hard as he tries to serve Jesus and love him and do what's right, I still mess up. Just talk to my family. Well, just don't talk too much to him about it. But I do. And so one day, though, I know that I will be completely freed from that sin. And I look forward to that day. And our lives are a struggle. But Jesus' goal, his purpose for you, is to take that sin from you. Not just wash it away. As significant as that is, church, don't get me wrong. His goal is to take that sin from you. That is the Lamb of God. You know what? My brother, Rob, he was a six, four, six, six foot four and a half inches to be exact. Big guy, about 375 pounds, all of him. I mean, he was just a big guy. He was nicknamed the Hulk for a good reason. And so there was a, a time in which my brother got ureter cancer. They could have just put him on a diet, I suppose, and hope for the best. You know, I guess low acid, that's supposed to help with dealing with cancer, low acid diets, if I'm not mistaken. But the truth is, they needed to go in there, and they needed to remove it. It had gotten infected, so they could have just put him on antibiotics, I suppose, and then a good diet, but they needed to remove it. See, you can have an infection, and you can be put on antibiotics, but eventually, whatever's causing the infection, it's got to go. Jesus did not just give us an antibiotic church. He had to remove that sin. Don't be surprised when God starts tapping us on the shoulder and says, you know what, I need you to give up that sin. Because the lamb came to die for that sin, to not just wash it away, but to remove it from your life. Amen? The second thing that we need to realize, when this, when this dove comes, 
when this dove comes, <coughs> excuse me, he represents life. I want to just ask you a question. If Jesus is the Lamb of God, what is the very purpose of that Lamb that takes away your sin? What's his destiny? It's to die, isn't it? For, for John the Baptist to call Jesus the Lamb of God, that means one thing, or one main thing, he needs to die. One day he needs to die, and it's not going to be of old age. He's going to need to die, because that's what sacrifices do. Their blood is used to wipe away the sin. Jesus' mission was to die. Hang on a second. How can a dead person give, or better, baptize, or even better, immerse anyone in the Holy Spirit? He can't stay dead. He can't. For this sacrifice to die and yet give the Holy Spirit and to immerse people in the Spirit, he has to come back to life. Whatever that was like. I'm not saying that John understood the cross and the resurrection. I don't think anybody truly understood that. But he had this idea something is going to happen. And then on top of that, when the dove comes that represents life, what does the Father's voice from heaven say? This is my Son, in whom I am well pleased. And by the way, Jesus had not done any miracles or preached any sermons that we're aware of. As a matter of fact, his first, ser his first, excuse me, his first miracle was turning the water into wine in Cana. Then he went down to Jerusalem and did a bunch of miracles. We'll talk about that another week. And then he went back up to Galilee and continued to do more miracles. But he hadn't done any miracles. This is my son in whom I am, I am so pleased with him because he's my son. John the Baptist knew at that moment this is the son of God. If you were to, if you were to take the word son, Jesus calling himself the son or the son of God, it would almost always be found in the context of the one who gives life. John 3, 16. God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. These things are written so that you may know that he's the Messiah, the Christ, the son of God, so that by believing you might have life in his name. And throughout John, many times, over and over and over again, Jesus reveals himself as the son. And that he has been given all authority to give life. Even as in the very beginning of John chapter 1, he actually created everything. He was the one who breathed life into Adam so that he became a living creature, a living being. He is the creator. He's the giver of life. This is the son of God. To be the son then means not only is he in close relationship with the Father and reveals the will of the Father, but that he also imparts life. So he forgives sins and he pulls, us out of, pulls the sin out of us and then he also gives us eternal life and that eternal life is in you. He who has the Son has life. 
he who does not have the Son of God does not have life. There are many religions in our day that proclaim many different ways to God. None of them preach Christ. None of them. They might think that Jesus was a good guy, that maybe he was just the 33rd incarnation of Vishnu, but the truth is Jesus is the Son of God. The Son of God. Sometimes we get a little bit hung up, well, he's the only begotten Son. This is monogenos. That was simply a compound word, and do you realize that that word is used by Abraham referring to his son Isaac. Isaac was his only begotten. Think about that. Did Abraham have another son? Actually had one 12, 13 years before him. His name was Ishmael. How can Isaac be his only begotten? See, this word, especially as it's used in the Greek, this word, a compound word, means more than just this idea of begetting. That's kind of, I mean, how else do you have a son, okay? When Jesus is the only begotten, it means he is the one and only. He's the unique. He is the favored. He is the son, the son. So it's not that the father somehow had sex with his wife and gave birth to a son, which is what the Mormons believe, but that Jesus is the one and only unique, the original, the one and only son of God. Not that somehow he was begotten like we think of begotten. Jesus is above all. In Romans 1-4, it says that Jesus' resurrection declared him to be the son of God. There is no other. There is no one else that can give life. There is no other religion that has the truth that if you just believe this and this, you have life. Only Jesus can give life. He's the only one. That life that we are seeking throughout our earthly lives is only found in Jesus. I want you to think, where do people in our day look for life? Where do they look? They look everywhere. They want to find it in relationships. Why do you think romance novels and romance movies are so big? Yeah, I'm not opposed to romance. Of course not. I love romance. I wish that, that I was an even, even more romantic type of person. I envy my son-in-law, Diego, because Diego is such a romantic guy. But I'm not opposed to anything. The Bible, God's not opposed to romance. But people are wanting to find life, something that fixes their life problems in romance. And can I just tell you that that will never fix your problems. Because the problems you had before marriage, guess where you're going to go with them? You're not going to leave them at the door. You're going to bring them right into your marriage. So Jesus has got to be the one to deal with that and truly give you life. I believe also that when we finally get this, that Jesus is the, the Lamb of God and the Son of God, then we understand, and I believe John got it, but now he really gets it, when he immerses us in the Spirit, 
there is something absolutely powerful that happens. In John 6, 63, it says the Spirit gives life. He takes the very life from the Son and he imparts it to us. But I want you to look at something here. I'm running out of time and I'm just going to have us focus on something real quick here. But in John 7, something so awesome that Jesus says about the Spirit, verse 37, chapter 7. On the last and greatest day of the feast, Jesus stood and said in a loud voice. So he's at the temple area and he is speaking really loudly. If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, streams or rivers of living water will flow from within him. The Greek word there means to come out of him. It's one thing to say that the spirit of God who brings life is stirring within us. He's the living water. He's the one that makes us alive. He has taken the very life of the Son of God and he's now imparted it to us. And we become new creatures. We are dead, now we're alive. See, we get this. But in John, that's not what Jesus is saying here, at least not only. He's saying that the, these rivers will flow out of you. That's the purpose of Pentecost. It's not just that life will be in us, but life will flow out of you. Here is my challenge. Here is my question. To what degree does life flow out of you? That is your purpose in life. Jesus came, did he not, to reveal the will of the Father. What is the will of the Father? That, he, that Jesus immerses you in the Spirit to what end? Not just that you come alive. That's by the indwelling of the Spirit. But the baptism in the Spirit is that that life flows out of you. You know, Diego and Rose, I was talking with Diego just last night, and he said, you know what, Mike, it's, it's been really neat. It's been really hard the last couple of weeks, but it's been really neat because Rose and I have been praying so much just because there's a lot at stake here. We need our baby to gain weight, and we've been praying every day. And he says, we just, we're not just closer, but we're closer to the Lord. We feed each other. And let me just put it in my words. Their life, the Spirit of God, is pouring through them, out of them into each other. And it's touching them. And they're not just closer to one another, but they are closer to the Lord. Your goal in life is to impact others. It's for that life that's in you, like a river of life flowing out of you to impact others. No, it's, it's not up to you the degree to which that life impacts others. It's just that you make yourself available. You're, his, you're God's mouthpiece, and you are, not only does he speak through you, but he lives through you. Something that really blessed my heart. Mickey Lana texted Meredith and I and said, yeah, I've just got this amazing testimony because Tora just had an event with God this past weekend. And Torah had been straying from the Lord for over a year. And she knew it. She, she was seeking God, but she had something, God did something in her life this past weekend. And so that I think it was Monday, 
Mickey Lana said, I saw her just go out into the field. Now, when I say field, I don't mean like my side yard. You know, that's kind of like a, a little area there. It's a good size, but we're talking about a field that's at least 100 yards by 100 yards, okay? And she goes out into the field, and she kneels down, right? And she just begins to pray. And she, when she is done, now I, I hope I'm remembering right, she is so excited about what God has done and what she, God wants to use her to now speak to her friends and say, you need to get connected with God. I wasn't, and man, I just really messed things up. I hope I'm not sharing too much, okay? But that's just what she has shared. And, and so now she's just so excited. She wants to tell her friends. When she came back in, she went to the back of the house, and she woke up Grace, who I'm sure was just so happy to be waked up early in the morning. And she said, we need to pray for these people. See, that's the spirit of God. That's life welling up within her like a river gushing out. I had a chance when I was a little kid, seven, eight years old, I went to Yellowstone National Park, and I got to see Old Faithful. And when Old Faithful erupts, it is just, it's like a fire hose, a fire hose uncaged. And it just erupts. And it goes high into the air. And it's very hot, by the way. Don't try to ever drink it. The truth, though, is that geyser is like the Holy Spirit, and it's like what's happening to Torah, and it's what it's supposed to happen with each of us. The Spirit of God welling up within us. I gotta tell somebody. I wanna help somebody. I wanna serve somebody. I wanna love somebody. I wanna tell somebody about Jesus and what he's done for me because he can change their life just like he changed my life. Church, what is your goal? What is your vision for life? It is, to, is it to acquire as many things and as much money as you can? I mean, I hope that God blesses you so that you can bless others. But your whole goal in life is to have that river well up within you and impart life to others. Is that your goal? Can you stand with me? Let's make that our goal tonight if it's not. Let's, let's pray that God in any and every way he can to let that river well up within us. Maybe tonight... There is just something that is keeping that water from erupting in your life. Jesus is the Lamb of God, and he takes away every sin if you let him. And Jesus is the Son of God and will impart that life. And by the Spirit, just like flow like a river out of it, erupt if it needs to. Father, I just ask you that your Spirit right now would speak to our hearts Father, if there is something that's holding that river of life down so that it's not erupting, so that it's not flowing out of us, God, I ask that you would release it in Jesus' name. That whatever is holding us back, God, break that in Jesus' name. Father, I ask that if we're discouraged, bring encouragement. Renew our faith, Lord God. And I ask you, Father, flow through a spirit of God, flow through us and impart that life. We can't do it. We're not that life, but spirit of God, you impart the life of Jesus and flow it through us. Do it, God. Do it, Lord, we pray, and impact all those people around us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.